Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. Over the next few days, we are highlighting stories about Lahaina families as this week marks six months since the deadly fires. Today, we hear a dramatic story of rescue and loss. A woman who survived nine hours in the water recounts her experience. We also check in on community hubs that appeared around the Valley Isle after the fires because there was a need to fill. We talk about understanding action or inaction during a school shooting uh, in Parkland, Florida. And we highlight a local teenage musician, talented beyond his years, with a bright future ahead. And he shares why it's important for him to carry on the legacy of his kapuna. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Imagine living at your workplace. That is a situation we came across when we interviewed a displaced West Maui resident this week. Etina Higano's husband works at the Royal Lahaina Resort, and ever since the fire burned their home, the hotel has been where the couple has settled in while waiting for a rental to open up. But Etina's story has uh, also touched us in another way. She shared with us that she watched as the winds blew over the town and the flames burned structures to the ground. She shared her story leading up to those uh, flames that engulfed the waterfront town, fleeing the fire and losing a dear friend, a neighbor, in the process. She survived by jumping in the ocean. It is where she stayed for nine hours until help finally came. She was out early that morning and recounted the sound of the wind that left her with an eerie feeling. It was something different. It's the kind of wind and the sound of it that I've never heard before. That's what brought us all outside because I know the hurricane wind started at 5 and I was on Front Street working at 4.30 in the morning cleaning Front Street when that wind just shut down the electric and it scared me because branches were breaking off and they were just flying in the air and that's how strong that wind was. But that died out at 2 p.m. And then I woke up my husband, he went to work at 3.05. I went back inside just to read uh, a book and it was the Olelo no Eau. You know, I worked for Lahaina Restoration Foundation so I was trying to get into all the Hawaiian sayings and all of this stuff that, and I had just bought the book and um, all of a sudden I heard this like, um, And I was like, what the heck is that? And so, and it was so loud and echoing throughout the whole Front Street area. And I, I was like, you know, maybe the Hawaiians are doing a chant or some kind of, you know, dance or something. And so I went outside and, and we looked up at Lahaina Luna and all I saw was almost like a sideways tornado sort of because it just kept rolling and the sound was coming from it as it continued to roll and all of a sudden we watched that wind just come down and we saw everything just bend the trees was just like it, it was crazy and then it came back up it started the same thing you could hear that sound and that sound would come down again and then as it came down the second time you could hear like the pop 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 we were like, oh, something's exploding or popping. And then the third time it went up again, and then as it came down, black black smoke came with it. 
I yelled and said, everybody go inside. Well, we ran in, closed the windows, closed the doors. And as that passed on, we came outside. We could see like there was like black ash on top the the railings and everything because I was on the second floor. And then all of a sudden, the wind kind of turned. It picked up the fire and then it came back down. And as the fires was, I think the oxygen fed it because it was yellow and it turned red. And when it came down, it was less than 15 minutes. It, it was random, the wind just coming. Then we saw houses on fire. Then all of a sudden, the fire was hitting apartments, the Lahaina Inn Hotel, and we could see that hotel went down in less than four minutes. And it was, it was so crazy. And we're just standing there watching. And then the embers started falling, and they started falling on our roof. You could hear like, um, and I was like, what is that? It was the embers falling on the rooftop. And I was like, why does it sound like rocks falling on it? And I, I told everybody, we gotta run, we gotta leave, we gotta go. And so I had two bags already set. It's my emergency bag. And I opened my safe, I took out the first two folders and I didn't know what was in there, but I, I do know that it was, in alignment with what was most important, next importance. And in the process of taking it out, I forgot my tax papers and only brought the two with documents and everything in it. And that was saved. My bag with my clothes and water and everything that went. But my neighbor downstairs, 80 year old, he didn't wanna go, but I told him we have to go. And I thought that he would survive it, but I remember what he said to me at the apartment was, I was born in Lahaina, I grew up in Lahaina, I'm gonna die in Lahaina. And he was 80 years old and he that's what he wanted. He said he'll just go back in. I said, I cannot leave without you. And I said, if you stay, I'll stay. So he said, we will go. By the time we got over the seawall, it was about four o'clock, four, maybe 4.15. And we walked, some ladies came and took us part of the way. And I remember that we kind of walked a little bit and almost was right across from um, Bubba Gump's. And as I saw, the, I knew my, my focus was to get over to seawall. And, you know, I think I know that if we had gone further down the seawall, he would have survived. But I think one of the things that I realized was there was only one stone high enough that he could go down and I could get him down safely because we were the first ones there. And what was his name? His name was, we call him Freeman Tam Lung. His father was the last cook at the Wohing Society Museum. He was the last cook, so he had a lot of history there. You know, his mom was Hawaiian, his father was Chinese, so I brought him down, but he told me, he said, I want to see Lahaina one last time. And I know that he cut, he, the reason why we couldn't move him any further was because he has gout. He's 80 years old. He's like 6'4". He's, um, he's, he's a very dear friend of mine. And so you survived by getting in the water? I was in the water. The thing was, one of my other mates from our apartment, she came with me. She also, like me, had shorts on. I remember I told her, get in the water, get in the water, because her skin, you know, I, 
I wanted to make sure that she was safe. I said, make sure you're covered with water because the embers were so hot. It burned me right here. That's a scar from that. And that's near your eye. Oh, my goodness. I thought I was going to lose my eye because I could feel the burn and my eye was like, I swiped it away and I felt the sting and I was like, oh. And one of the things I remembered in Boy Scouts was making sure that if you're in a fire situation with anything, either put it over you or put it over your face to protect you. And that's what I told everybody. I, I yelled it. Whoever heard me, I said, wet your shirts, put it over your nose and mouth. Uh, whatever you have to protect you. I remember it when I first got there because we were the only ones there. I told him to stay put, running to knock on windows and telling everybody to come. And um, I remember when he kind of slided back up, the truck behind him exploded and the fumes overtook him. And I remember I was, he was How long were you in the water before someone came to help you? We were there from 4 o'clock until 1.30 when we were rescued. 1.30 in the morning. Nobody knew that any of us had survived. I don't think so. But I remember that they said that there was a 911 call and they had rescued 16 people that I heard them as they radioed back and forth. And I remember one of um, the guys, and he later on passed but he never put anything on his face, and he was such a young hero. He was a holy guy, just walking. He came to check on Freeman, and he said that he had passed. I said, yeah. I, I went to Freeman, and I just talked to him, and I said, boy, you stubborn as usual. <laughs> I said, you could have survived with me, but you decided to climb back up the rocks and see Lahaina one last time. I said, but... I want to thank you because I feel like miracles happened that day. And, you know, there were times when I felt like he was there telling me to to just hold on. Well, the Coast Guard came. The Coast Guard came and rescued the people outside the, outside of the reef. They couldn't come in. They couldn't come in from the reef and they tried and tried and tried and finally the fire department was able to come through and they took us, um, the first I know was 24 or 26 people. Yeah, they came to rescue us at about 1.30 in the morning. 26 people, we were the second batch, there was like 16 of us and I remember inside the truck there was like the driver and somebody else, another person, and in the back there was five of us, and then in the backpack there was like all these people in the back, but... Jammed in there. Yeah, we just jammed because they were trying to get us out of there before the fire, and I remember thinking, oh, all these houses are saved, nothing is on fire and stuff like that, but apparently later on the fire kept going, and all those houses ended up burning down, so... That's a miracle in itself, you know, that they were able to come and get us because I think there was at one point when they went right before they came, my throat was so dry. And I said, does anybody have water? And I don't blame the little kids, you know. They said their parents were working, but they were there. 
they had water, but they had their animals too. They had three of their their dogs with them, so I don't blame them that they didn't share, but they were looking at me, and they were looking at the dogs, and I just, and I knew that probably that was the, for the animals, yeah. And that was the last of it. And then the two people next to me, oh, what is their name? They, they're taxi drivers, you know? They, and she had about maybe this much, about this much water in her bottle. And, and I said, okay, can I have a little sip? So I took a tiny little sip just to wet my throat because I felt like I couldn't breathe anymore. And then I called Annalise and I said, Annalise, would you like a sip? And she took a tiny little sip. And when I gave it back to her, she gave it to her husband and told him to finish it up. And right after that, it's, it was like the, the fire department showed up, I think like maybe half an hour after that. And um, from there, we were saved. And I remember right when we got in, somebody said, boy, there's so much uh, stuff on the floor. And then she picked up a water. And I remember all of us in the front of the truck, we all took a sip of the water. <laughs> and, and it was like, at that moment at time, nobody cared. You know, everybody just wanted water. They wanted water because water is life and the ocean saved their lives that night. We just heard the very dramatic story of Bettina Higano who recalled how good it felt to drink water in the back of a firefighter's truck after escaping the blaze by jumping in the ocean. She had been in the water for nine hours before fire rescue crews from the Lahaina station pulled her and an estimated 25 others out to safety. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, supporting businesses that are dedicated to the triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity, launching its directory of member businesses. Learn more at chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about a recent award by the U.S. Treasury to help build a new inner island fiber network. We'll find out what it means for Hawaii's internet service and how this positions Hawaii for the future. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. Nearly six months after the Maui wildfires, there are smaller crowds in places like the Lahaina Civic Center or at areas set up at resorts to help displaced families. But what about the community hubs that popped up in response to the disaster? HPR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel joins us today. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. So, yeah, uh, you know, driving around Maui uh, the other day, you know, you could see that there weren't quite the crowds that, that there were initially in some of these places. What did you see out there? 
For sure. So um, displaced families are starting to spread out, uh, you know, slowly into longer term housing. But uh, numerous community hubs, you know, as you mentioned, came together in the wake of the fire. Some many started just hours after the fire in response to, you know, government aid taking a while. The community hubs uh, were the first really to offer support for uh, fire survivors um, supplying those displaced residents with essentials, you know, long before official aid arrived. Uh, one of those hubs is a community hub at Pohaku Beach in Kahana, uh, a little bit outside Lahaina, known as S-Turns. And they were one of the first hubs to form, again, just hours after the fire. I think it was within 24 hours. They had set up almost like a whole grocery store <laughs> by the time I uh, stopped by to visit them about, you know, a week and a half after the fire really well organized, uh, you know, aisle tents, all intense, you know, aisles of diapers and essentials and canned goods and um, baby supplies and, you know, just every, you know, things that people would need who just lost everything. And, uh, you know, it was it was a buzz of activity. There were a constant stream at that time of folks delivering hot meals delivering bottled water, uh, delivering goods, just really uh, a busy place. And when I visited um, last, uh, actually earlier this week, um, there was, you know, it was more streamlined now. There was a little bit less uh, chaos and uh, more organized, a little bit slower, as you said. Things are are starting to shift. Um, I think one of the biggest changes since August was a shift from serving those hot meals to providing fresh produce. And uh, at S-Turns, it's delivered twice a week through a partnership with uh, local nonprofits. And they get those fresh that fresh produce directly from local farmers, so it's a win-win. Sean Anderson is one of the hub's coordinators who's been volunteering at S-Turns for the past six months. So we are very blessed to work with a couple nonprofits, HHH and Common Ground Collective are amazing, amazing nonprofits that go out and use, utilize the money that they're granted and donated to purchase produce from local farms. So enables us to provide more than just sodium in a can, you know, like canned goods are amazing, but it is one of those things that when you can give somebody fresh produce as well, that's a whole nother level of keeping you healthy, making sure that you're not going to have high blood pressure now because you've been eating only can spam for the last six months, you know, and it's local produce. So, you know, things that families here know, eat, love, enjoy. So to be able to give somebody something fresh, that's a whole like makes your heart happy. And they're so grateful. These folks who already have so much stress, whether they're insecure in their housing and they're insecure on so many things, are they going to have a job? where their kids going to go to school, all this stuff. So the S-turn hub, is that because of the turn in the road? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's a good question. I'm not sure of the name's origin. It is uh, winding right along the ocean there. Um, but that's that's what the sign says. That's what it's it's locally known by. And the hub continues to serve about 1,500 people a week, um, averaging three to four or 500 uh, per day. And people, when I was there, were lining up for this fresh produce. They also come with a list of, of things they need. 
Um, you know, one thing that hasn't changed is providing those essentials, diapers, soap, dry goods, canned goods, all of which continue to be donated. And, uh, you know, the volunteers at the hub will go and get those items for people from the tents that are still set up there. Uh, you know, after six months, they're still operating out of tents. Um, and Anderson was talking about that shift from sort of survival mode to recovery, not just trying to make it for the next 24 hours, but planning ahead for the next week, the next month. And as many other hubs are starting to phase out, you know, folks have mentioned um, just burnout, uh, you know, of the volunteers having to balance their own families. Um, and as well as some hubs, I think, are facing land use issues um, where they're located. But um, S-Turns is continuing to, to stay there along with a few other hubs. And um, Anderson said that as some of those hubs phase out, S-Turns is actually seeing, you know, a, a steady uh, number of folks, if not an increase, as sort of those locations become consolidated. Kanamu Belinbin and his family uh, spearheaded the hub's formation. They're still working there almost every day. His 19-year-old daughter is, uh, is still working there every single day for the past six months. And S-Turns, you know, will be there for the long haul, they say. <laughs> um, Belinbin says that that really means until their town is rebuilt. And in his words, they were the first to open and they'll be the last to close. He, uh, Belinman reflects on the past six months. No, really, people are still in shock. You know, everybody's still like, it's still in the days because nobody, nobody's settled yet. We've branched out doing other things to get involved with housing, you know, housing, looking for a permanent hub site. You know, the county's been kind of somewhat helpful in that sense of trying to find us a spot or giving us support. There's a lot of rumors that they're going to shut us down and and you know it's just the county's point of view is that is that um we're needed and you know we, the numbers prove it we have all the data and you know we still have somewhat steady supply of of produce and canned goods that come in which is really helpful people are starting to move into condos with kitchens now so they can kind of fend for themselves so that's kind of the idea of what they're how they're phasing people out yeah, but the first one to open and the last one to close. Interesting. Yeah, and they are looking, you know, as I, I mentioned, the, <laughs> they're still working out of tents. The wind is just blowing through there, and they're ready for a more permanent site, seeing as, you know, they are in it for the long haul. They're looking for a brick-and-mortar site, which, as Belinbin mentioned, uh, it sounds like the county is, is kind of helping them with. But, um, you know, again, that'll be into the future. Uh, they're still going to be working out of tents, but... Uh, Belinden's often pays, you know, two or three hundred dollars a week out of his own pocket for diesel to keep the generators running. And uh, it's definitely a, a labor of love. Um, Anderson says, despite all the challenges, they're just they're doing what they can to help their community. Time and again, people come to see us and they are in need, but they don't want to ask. Because they feel that for whatever reason, they are in need enough. And with tears in their eyes thanking us for baby wipes or shampoo and conditioner or whatever for spam and vienna sausage like a bag of rice they're so very thankful you know we are appreciative of our community and our community appreciates us i think like we're just here the hugs that i've gotten the people who are literally at their wits end in tears because we gave them some bananas and some lettuce. You know, it's just those little things. So it's it's been a most beautiful, difficult, easiest thing I've ever done. And that's aloha, isn't it? 
It is, and I think it's just a testament to, you know, over the past six months how we've seen community just come together and and really be the ones that have provided the support for those who who lost everything. Um, It's it's really a a testament to the strength of of Hawaii, you know, across the state, and of course the Lahaina community as well. Yes, well, thank you so much, Catherine, for bringing us that perspective. That was HPR's Maui Nui reporter, Catherine Clewitt-Pactel, talking to us about the community hubs on Maui. When Rose heard stories that the owner of an addiction treatment center was harassing patients and giving them drugs. What? I mean, I really had a little mini nervous breakdown. Then one day, the owner tells her how he wants to deal with a whistleblower. He's like, wouldn't it be better if you were just gone? What about him having a car wreck? Dark Secrets in the Addiction Treatment Industry on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Mike Mark's Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, presenting actor, producer, and comedian Marlon Wayans of the Scary Movie franchise, performing in two sets nightly this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. Hawaii has been fortunate to not have had to deal with an active shooter situation in our schools, but what can we learn from other cases in Uvalde and Parkland? Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us this morning for The Long View. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. So, yeah, what got you on this subject? Well, uh, first of all, what you said about what we can learn, what we can learn is a lot, and a lot of it is uh, pretty pessimistic. But what got me into it is that I just started reading this article called uh, by Jamie Thompson called To Stop a Shooter, Why Would an Armed Officer Stand By as School Shooting Unfolds? And I could tell from the title that it was going to be about um, the Parkland shooting and that one officer who was there but didn't go in and implicitly about Uvalde. It was, especially about Parkland, but in a very different sort of way that makes you question certain assumptions that you made. And I think a good place to start is to talk about the idea of courage. Um, As soon as the information began to come out about Scott Peterson, this, uh, he was a police officer, a student, a a school research, resource officer, which means you're really a police officer. He was there on the scene, he went out, um, to a, uh, another building where he thought he was closer. And then as the bullets continued to fly, he stayed and, and leaned against the wall. First thing people said was cowardice. The coward of Broward, he was called, because it's Broward County. Just like in Uvalde, the first thing that you began to think about was um, cowardice. You had that, that terrible vision of the police officers being next to the door, and then the, the shooter shoots out and the police officers retreat. 
Now, this is not about saying, uh, not defending courage, but it, what this article really does in lots of different ways is to show that it's that essentially there are all kinds of things that keep people from, from going in. But the most important thing to understand is that it's not about you can't make people brave by leaping above what they know. That as the police experts say, in a crisis situation, you as an officer go down to the level of your training. That is, it's about organization and it's about training. So that's a kind of a different perspective. By the way, Peterson was also charged criminally um, and he was found innocent for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is that the statute doesn't really apply very easily to that kind of stuff. So courage and even the legal process doesn't tell you very much. One other thing to understand is that changes in how we dealt with, we deal with uh, active shooters, at least on paper, changed abruptly after Columbine. Columbine, the shooters were inside. Remember, this is a long time ago yeah, already. Colorado. Mm -hmm. Colorado. The shooters were inside. The police at the time were trained to wait outside as if it's a hostage situation with bad results. As a result, the new form of dealing with this was go right in. Okay, you go right in. And that's where things start getting complicated, especially if you're talking about one person. So the first problem, the first obstacle, is the kind of training that you need to go into a situation like this. Um, and remember, if you're talking about a single officer on the scene, it's even harder. But one of the things that Thompson points out is the kinds of training that people who do this uh, more often, Navy SEALs, SWAT teams, the kind of training that they get is incredibly long, incredibly complicated, and does things that the average person wouldn't even think of. For example, if you're a SWAT team or if you're a Navy SEAL, and as the SWAT team people say, if an individual has a problem, you call the police. If the police have a problem, you call the SWAT teams. Um, one of the things they have to learn, besides all these other things about breaching and explosives, is how to breathe. Because, and they spend a lot of time practicing this because the breath is the thing that allows you to overcome your own fear of death with a heartbeat so high. Um, police don't get anything close to that, and it would be very regular police. It would be very hard to instill that given the amount of time it would take, and police have lots of other things to do. So part of this is about training. Another part of it is about organization. Now, if you think about it, a one person showing up at the scene is kind of like a Western cowboy. Mm -hmm. You know, you're supposed to go right in. In fact, the way that SWAT teams and the way that seem to be the effective ways to go in is essentially to go in as a as a group, organizing. Right. Safety in numbers. Yeah, yeah, giving numbers, and they go in. You know, they go in in kind of a confident formation. One person, uh, one person can't do that. And at the same time that you're supposed to go right in, the issue is that in order to go in the way the SWAT team has to go in, that takes time. It takes time to get there. And, and the thing about these kinds of situations is that, and it's sad to say this, most people who die there die even before the police can, before law enforcement can get there. They can certainly save some lives. So 
what really what really seems to be going on here is that the capabilities of an individual officer to do anything are really really pretty limited. Mm-hmm. You're the first one on the scene. Uh, and the other thing is that, as police experts point out, even if you go in as an individual, you can't you you can't even fathom it. It's smoky, it's noisy. You have to find the place to be. Sometimes you don't even have. Sometimes you don't even wait to take the proper weapon out of your out of your trunk where the police take it. So, what's this is not about defending lack of courage. It's about understanding that things like um, courage are, uh, are is, that it's as much about training as anything else. Or it's about understanding that in the case of Uvalde, and the Department of Justice just came out with a scathing report, there, there are two ways to think about Uvalde. One is the lack of c- courage. The other one is how disorganized the response was. There was no organization at all. There was no one in charge. And that, they say, is the, is the fundamental problem here. So what makes me concerned, what makes me very um, pes- not pe- it makes me very upset, is if you take a step back and you say, here's a situation where a, a um, individual with an automatic weapon is inside a school and has started killing already, um, and somehow you have to have a response that is going to mitigate that. Well, you already see how hard it is to mitigate that, even if you're well-trained. But the other thing is how much mayhem has already gone on. So, you know, when you talk about all these other things, some people think you should arm the teachers, um, you have better better mental health, uh, get rid of guns. That's whatever. You know, I understand all of that, uh, even though I'm not a big Second Amendment advocate. I understand it. But the fundamental issue is what you're going into, what you have to do, and it comes back to the same thing. If we're dealing with mass or target hardening might be another one. If we're dealing with mass shooting, active shooting, it's mayhem. And it's not that clear that all of these kinds of things that we would like to be able to do, it is even possible to do. Yeah, really something to think about. I, I, what pops in my brain is I talked to a mom who of a new recruit. Yeah. And she was worried that he only got her son only got a couple of weeks training at the uh, fire range. Oh, yeah, and, and, so you and they don't even that. get that. That's very good. The yeah. stuff that the police officers say about fire training. And most of them never fired a gun. Yeah. Some of the people who are good at this are hunters yeah. because they've had a prior sense of how you deal with this. Yeah, but take a deep breath. Yeah, yeah. take it. Well, more than one. Yes. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much. You're Neil. welcome. We've been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner, for The Long View, and we'll have a link to the article that Neil referenced to in our discussion on the conversation page of our website after the show. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, celebrating 75 years of preparing Hawaii's future business leaders for global opportunities. Scheidler.hawaii.edu HPR presents Kamaha'o Haumea Thronus. Hey, 
This concert is a part of HPR's Mele Hawaii Performance Series. Kamahao is performing Sunday, February 11th at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from Kahala Hotel and Resort celebrating its 60th anniversary, committed to Oahu, working with the community and local nonprofits to help preserve the land, ocean, and culture for the coming decades. Kahalaresort.com. Time now for this week's Manu Minute. The Japanese bush warbler was first brought to Hawaii in 1929 to control insects. The shy bird song is beloved in its homeland and signals the beginning of spring there. Thanks to the Makale Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology for the recording, here is University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Japanese bush warblers are small, mostly brownish songbirds with a distinct white eyebrow or superciliary line above their eyes. Because they spend most of their time in dense understory vegetation, they're really hard to see, but it's their loud, very distinctive song that gives them away. There are two main types of song. The first has a long introductory whistle ending in a syllable. The second is mostly a long, descending series of double notes. Known as uguisu in Japanese, they're one of the best known and loved songbirds in Japan. And after a long winter, that song is viewed as one of the first signs of spring. It's sung only by the males to advertise their territories and try to attract females. These birds are also highly regarded for their droppings, which are the main ingredient in a very effective skin cream that's been used in Japan for centuries. Hawaii is the only place in the world where Japanese bush warblers have become established outside their natural range. They were first introduced to Oahu in 1929 to control insects, and expanded on their own to all the other main Hawaiian islands, most recently making the long flight to the Big Island in the 1990s. Sexes are similar in plumage, but the males are almost half again as heavy as the females. Unlike most other songbirds that are monogamous, male Japanese bush warblers are polygynous, where a male sets up a territory and pairs up with multiple nesting females. Japanese bush warblers are found in a variety of native and non-native forests across the state and seem particularly attracted to areas of dense uluhe fern, where there are often very few other bird species. We still don't know a lot about their ecology here in Hawaii, but at least for now, they don't seem to be having a significant negative impact on our native birds or forests. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and Kama'aina for more than 30 years. More information at hawaii-forest.com.
one thing to work to preserve the Hawaiian culture. It's another thing entirely to embody that preservation. And that's what 14-year-old Kauai native Kamahau uh, Haumea Thronus is doing with his voice. might think you're listening to a classic Hawaiian singer from the 1930s, but you're actually listening to Haumea Thronus' 2023 single, Ko'i Manila. The talented youngster is fluent in Hawaiian and currently a student at Kamehameha School's Kapalama. He made local headlines after last year's song contest when a video of his uh, rollicking rendition of Hawaiian Cowboy went viral. This Sunday, he'll be playing a show in HBR's Atherton Performing Arts Studio. How may I throw us recently talked with the conversations Russell Subiono in our studio. The first time I became aware of you was watching the Manama'oli Hawaii 78 video, right, on YouTube. When you were one of the musicians that popped up on screen, I thought to myself, this has got to be a pretty talented kid if they're going to feature him in this video along with all of these other known musicians, right? And so that kind of prompted me to kind of pay attention to your career. And because it's not so often that we see such a strong singing voice from someone that is young, was your singing ability something that was kind of nurtured in your family because your family is a musical family or you kind of just born with the talent? Nobody in my family really took on music as a career. Mm-hmm. Some of my family members could sing, you know, backyard kind of kapila style, but nobody really took it to the professional level. From I was a kid, I always loved music. My family, you know, my, my mom, she didn't really listen to Hawaiian music. That was kind of something I did on my own. And then uh, going to Kayapuni School, mm-hmm. Hawaiian Charter School, that helped as well. You know, we would sing Hawaiian mele and things like that. So I think that's really what, yeah, brought the love for Hawaiian music to me. I imagine singing was natural for you from the beginning. But for your family, at what point did they start to recognize that you had a unique talent? You know, at school, a lot of my music teachers... Kawaikini, they recognized that really early on. I remember one of my music teachers, she would explain how, oh, you know, when you were little, we would sit, sit in the classroom, and we would be learning the song, and then I'll tell you guys, okay, sing it. And I would always be in the front row, right in the middle, and swing along to the song, closing my eyes and really connecting to the melody, connecting to the song. My family didn't realize it until I got the opportunity to try out for that Hawaii 78 video. I think there were many, many hundreds of different youth that tried out for that video. And so that was just something, oh, okay, I would just try and see what happens. And then when I got the spot, I think that's when we kind of realized that, you know, the music could be a career for me, something oh, I could take cool. on. And if someone hasn't heard your music before or haven't heard you sing before, how would you describe your music? You know, I do traditional Hawaiian mele, Hawaiian music. I'm also a singer, a songwriter. I play ukulele most of the time. And I just try to do Mele Hawaii in its traditional form while still adding my own flair to it, keeping it new, but not too new. Always honoring the, the work that our kupuna did to write these beautiful Mele and put the beautiful medleys to them. And as you grow as a singer and a musician, I imagine you're constantly evolving and constantly finding your own style. Like you said, right, doing traditional Mele, but putting your own flair to it. So whose music influences your style? 
you know, there's so many of Hawaii's artists. If you look at my Hawaiian playlist, I have over 5,000 songs. In wow. <laughs> but since when I was young, I would always listen to the legends like Auntie Genoa Kiave. Mm. There's also newer ones. Her granddaughter, Pomaika'i Kiave Lyman, continues. Napalapalai, Kuana Torres them. And there's so, so many others. Natalie Aikama'u, Ho'okena. So there's all these different people that, you know, everything just combined. And just finding the way... I can share the melee myself. Yeah. I just find it's really important as a youth nowadays in this generation to have a love for Hawaiian music. There's not many that I know that love Hawaiian music and that'll be able to listen to it 24-7. A lot of people are turning to Taylor Swift for people like that, and which is awesome. They have beautiful, beautiful talents. But I think continuing the work of our kupuna, you know, they, they put so much work into it and that our Hawaiian language is almost lost. And so mele Hawaii. I like to say that it's the thing that holds in all the mo'olelo, the stories of their time, and it gets to pass it on to our generation. I know the video of your performance of Hawaiian Cowboy at last year's Commandment Schools song contest went viral. Singing ability aside, we also don't usually see that kind of level of showmanship or stage presence from someone your age. How do you do it so effortlessly? What fuels your courage to get up on stage and put on a show? You know, I think for that particular show, the song contest, we're honoring Paniolo. And one of those particular Paniolo that had a really, really talented gift was Uncle Saul K. Bright. He did that Mele Hawaiian Cowboy all over. And nobody, nobody could beat his version. So we tried to replicate that to the best that we could. So when I did that performance, that was in my mind the whole time. You know, do it for him. Do it to honor everybody. All of the Hawaiian musicians that are still here, continuing Mele Hawaii and those that we have lost. And just continue it. You know, I think that's what gives me the courage to be able to go on stage and share my Mele and share my stories. Yeah, to just make sure it doesn't die off and to continue it. Many people your age are still discovering what their talent is. You know, what is it about music that makes you so passionate about it? Why do you sing and perform? I know you've shared a little bit already, but when you really think about it, you know, what is it that you love so much about singing and performing? You know, I think it's the aspect of all these beautiful mele, you know, the ones I write, the ones that have been written by others, they all they all capture a story, and each story is unique. And I feel it's really, really important that I continue it. You know, I've said it a lot, but that's what gives me so much hope for Mele Hawaii. That's why I think I continue it. I could do many other different genres, but I think Mele Hawaii is so special, and it's what I hold dear in my heart because it's what our kupuna did. And like I said earlier, there's not many that continue Mele Hawaii nowadays, especially for this generation. So just to be able to do it and continue it, and might as well use my gift to the best of my abilities to share the stories of our kupuna, their ike, and of course all their beautiful mele. You know, being in the spotlight early on in life comes with its own kind of set of pressures and expectations. How do you kind of handle that when you're in the public eye? You know, I just always say thank you, you know, mahalo. And I, I try not to take the credit. You know, it's all the work that our kupuna already set up for us years and years ago from their writing of the mele, their performing of the mele. So let's assume that 
you make a career of performing music and you're able to accomplish things that a typical career musician accomplishes, what would you like your musical legacy to be? What would you like future generations to say about your music? You know, I think I just want it to be to be seen as somebody who continued the legacy of our kupuna. I know I bring that up a lot, but I think that's really, really important. I think that's how I want to be seen, somebody who continued the traditions of our kupuna and didn't let it die off. You have a show coming up in our Atherton Performing Arts Studio. Can you share with our audience the details and what you have in store for them? Yeah, for sure. So I'm so, so excited to be here at Hawaii Public Radio and put on a wonderful show for Mahina Olal Hawaii Hawaiian Language Month. So yes, I will be performing February 11th, a Sunday at 2 p.m. It's going to be so exciting. I'm also bringing some of my friends, Kings Kalohelani and Kapono Lopes. And we're just going to jam, yeah. you know, have a have a really fun time sharing the mela of our kupuna. We're going to go on a little journey across all eight islands and maybe do some hula classics. We'll probably have some special guests in the house. So it's going to be really, really good fun just sharing mele Hawaii to celebrate Mahina Olalo Hawaii. I saw that you brought your ukulele with you. Would you be able to perform something for us to kind of give our listeners an idea of, of your music? Yeah, for sure, for okay. sure. Thronus, thanks so much for coming into the studio today. It's so much fun talking to you. Of course. Thank you so much. Mahalo. Oh, he is channeling the greats, isn't he? That was 14-year-old musician Kamahaumea Thronus talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Haumea Thronus kicks off our Mele Hawaii concert series with a performance in our Atherton studio this Sunday. You can get your tickets on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. We do have to go now, but up tomorrow we will be marking the six-month anniversary of the Maui wildfires with a live broadcast from Lahaina. We plan to hear from Mayor Bisson and others as we reflect on the disaster. Got a story or memory you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you download podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.